Hello and welcome again to the new age of risk analytics, where we discuss the evolution of risk and finance integration into the new digital era. The new insurance accounting standard, IFRS 17, has broader implications than some of our risk managers might realize. David Anderson, Advisory Director, Risk Consulting at KPMG US, and Bryce Earhart, Director, Accounting Advisory Services at KPMG US, discuss the standard and its implications for you. So we're here today to talk about IFRS 17. Now, for our listeners who are not insurance-based, can you illuminate for us exactly what that is? Yeah, so IFRS 17 is is a standard, um, and the, the purpose of the standard was to bring about consistency and transparency within the financial reporting space globally. So historically, IFRS 4 was a primary reporting basis for insurers. IFRS 4 is not a specific standard. It, it allows much more broader interpretation context for local gap. So insurers are able to report on a local reporting basis that's not consistent or unified across the globe. So IFRS 17, the, the primary objective is to bring that consistency and transparency within the financial reporting process and how it works across organizations, across geographies, really trying to tie everything together. If, I'm, if I am a user of the financial statements, whether I'm an investor or a regulator looking at how those financial statements are, work, I want to be able to understand the consistency and, and the, the difference between products across, across different geographies around the globe without having to put in some kind of understanding of what the, the differences within that local gap might be. So can you tell us how it differs specifically from local gap and how it differs from IFRS 4? Like what are the advancements that are leading to that consistency? So IFRS 4 is a standard that basically tells you as the preparer of the financial statements to do whatever you used to do. So it's almost grandfathering in any old local gap. So what that leads you with is a global insurance accounting industry where everyone is doing something different for accounting. So there isn't much comparability, and that's why. So you can't go and compare a U.S. company to a U.K. company because they're both maybe under IFRS 4 for reporting purposes. However, one IFRS 4 is different from another's IFRS 4. IFRS 17 is a very comprehensive standard that now will take everyone that's under IFRS reporting and put them on a same accounting basis. That's very well clarified. Thank you. It certainly makes sense that we would need to do that as, as we become a more you know, global, interconnected world. What do you think that this addresses in terms of getting to that goal that was the biggest deficit? Is there an element of the standard that is most on point or is, is going to be the, the, the biggest driver of consistency among organizations worldwide? Comparability. That's one of the biggest ones. Another one's transparency. Within the insurance industry today, there's a lack of transparency into an insurance company's profitability. So what that means is offsetting of gains and losses within a portfolio maybe. And what this standard tries to do is separate out profitable contracts from unprofitable contracts. And then it tells you within disclosures, hey, these are the, the problem areas of this insurance company. And, and one, of the other, one of the other pieces of that is within the new disclosures, you kind of paint the picture 
of how management is actually creating their contracts and how they are um, handling the different products that they have. So there's there's kind of a a play there of, of trying to achieve the objective of the of the requirement while not basically giving away the secret sauce of how how management is actually managing their and running their business. But the transparency aspect does provide a lot more granularity and, and level of detail in terms of how management is operating their portfolios, how they're pricing certain products, and how they're ultimately achieving profitability or lack of profitability. And that's what the disclosures aim to achieve. So that gives you again the element of transparency uh, that the regulators are really looking for. It's just a question of how far you actually have to go. Do you think the standard is really getting at what it needs to to achieve the goal of comparability? Are there gaps? Are there other elements that could be tackled or might be missing? I mean, on the surface of it, it, it achieves what it wants to achieve, uh, and that is comparability, transparency, and consistency. But to be honest, it's going to be the users of the financial statements that de- decide how successful it is. And the same goes on the U.S. GAAP side. U.S. GAAP has targeted changes for life insurance accounting as well going on. And, you know, users, again, there are going to have to judge whether or not they're getting out of it what they want to get out of it. So TBD at this stage. But I would say personally that, yes, it it achieves what it's set out to achieve. I know that there are, are probably a, a wide variety of concerns around implementation for people who are facing this standard. That's an understatement. <laughs> <laughs> well, uh, please feel, feel free to, to fill in that, that perspective. What do you think are the challenges that people are about to face? You know, our risk managers certainly want to know that as they try to balance what is going to be a fundamental restructuring of this perspective with the way that they've done business. Yeah. So the, the way the standard works is it, it, re- it requires you to kind of group your, your policies in a specific way. And, and to do that effectively, you have to have data at a policy level. And it's a lot more data than we've ever had to have in the industry before. So there's, there's challenges all the way from a data sourcing side through you know the calculation and all the way through to financial reporting and getting to the disclosures. So the whole process is kind of being re-engineered. And, and that's the approach that we've taken with a lot of the clients we've worked with is to develop this process of how, how do you build out an IFRS 17 infrastructure from data sourcing all the way through the calculation and then get to the financial reporting and the disclosure piece of it. That whole engineering and architecture, again, is a completely different view than what's historically been had. And you've got to kind of change your mindset and how you how you build it out and work through work through the process. There's just a, there's introducing a lot of new complexity uh, within the standard, and not just not just in the business as usual environment, but also in the implementation process, and and kind of throughout throughout the design and, and, and build as well. So there's just a lot a lot of new challenges that companies are trying to deal with, and they're trying to figure out how to handle all that and tackle all that um, at the same time. Well, as, as people look at implementation, are you seeing challenges already? Is it the mindset that, that's the most challenging? Is it the data that's the, the most challenging? What is, what is causing people the most, for lack of a better word, agita in, in the ramp up to this? I think from an industry perspective, it's, it's not just the data, it's the full picture. Understanding the full impact that the standard is going to have on an organization is, is challenging. 
and seeing how much of an impact that's going to have across across the globe for these multinational organizations is creating a lot of angst internally. So you've got you've got com- companies within the U.S. that are U.S. domiciled filers, and this is just a compliance exercise for them, and they have to file statutory financial statements in in 30, 40, 50 different countries, and they have to comply with the standard. You have other other international organizations that are our primary IFRS filers, and it's their primary filing basis. It's a completely different way of looking at the standard and how you apply it. Some companies are managing their business on it. Some companies are, again, using it as a compliance-based exercise. But as you evaluate the way that you're going to comply with the standard and you think through all the different complexities of of actually building out the process from beginning to end, it it creates a huge, huge lift on the organization in terms of the people and capacity they have to be able to do it. Um, It it creates a lift on them in terms of of how they're actually going to maintain it in a business-as-usual environment. And it, it creates a lot of challenges trying to get budget, budgeting approved for it. And, and we've seen that throughout the industry and is still seeing that as a constraint now. Um, and, and really bringing that to the forefront for executives to understand the level of work that's involved to get the standard done right. There's also a bit of a shift in culture. In the past, you kind of have your accountants and your actuaries and your IT people working in silos. And under this new framework, you need to be working in a more collaborative and communicative way across all three of those groups. And part of the operational complexity is how do you get these groups talking to each other? And it's not just how verbally, right? But it's the systems. All of them are using different systems. So there needs to be some way to take the systems that they're using to talk and incorporating those into one cohesive operating model. Is there anything that you've witnessed that you've found is helpful in people in in that process? You're really talking about changing not just one culture in the organization, Mm -hmm. but, you know, when you're dealing with several silos, that's three. One option that some companies use is creating implementation projects that are based on each of those different silos. There's an increased risk that runs there because those groups are not necessarily running in tandem. They may be running in parallel, but there's not as many communication uh, overlaps. Another way, and, and this is what I would recommend, is you know going to the table together and speaking to the IT people, the actuaries, the accountants, all in unison. And when it comes to creating an implementation program, they all would come together at the outset and throughout the entire process, there's a level of communication and dependency amongst the groups that really helps to build out that culture. And once it gets to the implementation phase, i.e. when you're putting together these new models, these new programs, processes, controls, you have outlined these different dependencies that exist. And by identifying them, you work in ways to uh, accommodate them. That makes a lot of sense. In terms of planning, and certainly starting from the same page is a big part of of any long-term project like that. Can you speak a little bit about the recent delay and the deadline, what that was, what that means? Is this a process of them reevaluating the project on such a level that people should 
hold off until the dust settles before they begin planning an imp implementation, mm -hmm. or should they go like yeah. they're going to run out of time? Yeah. So, just to be clear, my personal view, no one should be holding off. You know, you have an extra year. Uh, everyone should be thankful that we have the extra year. The extra year came to be through a lot of discussion with the ISB, which is the authority that has essentially issued the standard. And there's a resource group, a transition resource group, and that group has brought a variety of questions and potential concerns to the ISB. And through that process, there's been amendments that have been made to the standard, um, tentative amendments. One of those amendments is the deferral. And what the deferral did is it said, okay, my transition date for IFRS 17 is 1st of January 2021. Now it's going to be 1st of January 2022. So we almost reset the clock a bit. Um, and, you know, in this process, the ISB re-deliberated 25 or so issues. Uh, so the dust is settling. It's almost completely settled, really. There may be a few additional things that come up here and there as we go through the implementation process, um, but that doesn't mean that we should be slowing the projects. What it does mean, though, is that we should, we should take, a, take a breath, look at our implementation project, look at it as compared to 2021 versus 2022, and see where there's opportunities to do a little, little bit of additional work or cut back in areas. One of the important parts with this project is that there's a lot of companies that are using it as a value-add exercise as well, not just compliance. So compliance is just ticking the dots uh, and, and crossing your T's on IFRS 17. But a lot of companies want to use it for actuarial transformation, finance transformation, operation modernization, um, and, and they've built in that. Now, realistically, with the 2021 date for transition, most companies we're really gonna be running up against that. Even the first movers, the first movers, which are the large multinational insurers that have a lot of people working for them, obviously, weren't necessarily gonna even be able to hit that date. Now they have 2022, they have an extra year, they have the ability to move along and build into that process what they always wanted to, whether it is a transformation um, of your actuarial systems or, or finance systems, as an example. You know, another place that some companies are going to be thinking through the, using this extra year is cost-cutting within their implementation program. IFRS 17 implementation is quite costly, and that's because it's a fundamental change in how you do your accounting and arguably some of your actuarial valuations right now. Um, so some companies are thinking, I have an extra year. Maybe I don't need to do three dry runs. I can only do. I only have to do two dry runs, and because of that extra year, I have a bit of buffer in between them to be able to do the tweaks that I need to. So I don't need three dry runs. So there's a variety of different things to think about there. Um, but needless to say, there shouldn't be any pausing at this point. And if you haven't started yet with your implementation, you should. That's always a good message to have. It's never it's never bad to be prepared for those for those insurers which are smaller and are not multinational and you know and don't have this you know excess capital to build out a whole new infrastructure. Um, what kind of time frame should they be looking at? Can they still approach 
seeing this as an opportunity and not just a limitation, um, you know, is, is all of that due to sort of financial resources in terms of implementing this optimally? Um, are there uh, approaches that are ad advantageous for that level as well? I think there are approaches that are advantageous for the smaller insurers, especially with the additional year. You do have that ability. Uh, the place that's going to be the most challenging for them is uh, obviously getting the budget, but getting the resource as well. Uh, the insurance industry's uh, job market is very tight right now. There's a lot of accounting change happening in the U.S. and internationally. Um, and I think one thing that a lot of people, insurance companies, are realizing is that I don't have the resource and I can't find the appropriate resource within the marketplace. So where do I get it? And that's one of the reasons that it's critically important to start now if you haven't, um, because the longer you wait, the harder it is going to be to secure those resources. Um, and, and if you don't secure those resources, then the project may just fall down to a compliance exercise rather than having the opportunity to use any value add. Um, and, you know, you may want it to just be a compliance exercise, and that's completely fine and acceptable. Um, but, you know, without the resources, you have a, a large risk of noncompliance or issues with the transition as BAU. A great example is, um, you know, IFRS 9 accounting change. So with IFRS 9, a similar implementation program, a big lift in how you account for your financial instruments. And, you know, most companies were able to get to the finish line and adopt the standard as needed to be by the end of the transition period. They got to the end, but they didn't have enough resource and time to be able to put in place the appropriate processes and controls. And because of that, now they're in a process of, to remediate a lot of these control failures uh, and lack of controls that they just didn't have the time to put in place. Uh, so when you move that over into our insurance world, you know, another, another place that you need to be thinking about is how are you going to be able to adapt your implementation program to not just think about getting across the line with the numbers, but getting across the line with the appropriate process and controls. A lot of our audience comes from the banking sector. Why should our banking people care about IFRS 17? How, how does that relate? Yeah, and that's a really good question because IFRS 17 is named insurance contracts. So you know, if you don't issue insurance contracts, why should you care about it? One of the most fundamental things about IFRS 17 is that its scope is determined on a contract-by-contract contract basis. So if you were to compare that with U.S. GAAP, U.S. GAAP's scope for their insurance standard is on an entity basis. So if I'm an insurance company in the U.S., I apply the insurance company uh, standard for U.S. GAAP. However, in the IFRS world, if I issue anything that is an insurance contract, then I have to apply IFRS 17 to that contract. And, believe it or not, there's a lot of companies out there that may issue insurance contracts and they don't even know it. Uh, and that's because of what the definition says. Now, I won't get into the definition, but the point of this is that entities, whether you're an insurance company or not, need to think through whether or not you are 
issuing any insurance contracts. Now, within just the aura of, you know, business, most of the areas outside of insurance companies that are going to be affected by this are banks. And within the banking sector, there could be some types of contracts that are considered insurance. And that would be essentially contracts that are issued that have some form of non-financial risk tagged to them. Non-financial risk being any sort of mortality risk, for example. So one example could be some sort of loan, whether that be a mortgage or a student loan, that has a waiver of principal uh, upon death. That in and of itself could be an insurance contract. Now, one part of these amendments that we were talking about earlier is how to deal with those types of contracts. And there is a tentative amendment that would say that there's a choice as to how you would deal with that. You either account for it under the financial instrument standards or under the insurance contract standard, IEI for S17. Um, but what's important here is that from an accounting perspective, that's an insurance contract. So the working assumption is that it would be an insurance contract and you have to make a choice as to whether or not to pull it out and account for it under IFRS 9, which is the financial instrument standard. Um, so the important thing to take away from this is that if you are a bank, there is at least some sort of assessment that needs to be had as to determine whether or not you do have any insurance contracts that you are issuing. Can you talk a little bit about the intersectionality between all of these different compliance standards and, and you know, as, you know, as the uh, financial world becomes more interconnected, not just in, in terms of geographical, also business lines, uh, merge together. You know, what do insurers need to know about CECL? What do banks need to know mm -hmm. about? You know what I mean? Yeah, so yeah. if you could address yep. that. Yeah, no worries. So I, I touched on the what the banks need to know about for S 17 so let me take it the other way. Uh, you know, insurance companies make a lot of their money through investments, right? So they have a very heavy portfolio investment portfolio, that investment portfolio is achieving two things. You're trying to achieve spreads to make money, but you're also there. It's there to support your liabilities, you know, and, and that's what helps to make up your surplus. So naturally, there's a left side and a right side of the balance sheet. What we've been discussing a lot today is the rights, the, the liabilities, the insurance contract liabilities. For the left side, you have the investments, and so there's a lot of change happening there as well, right? So you have IFRS 9 from the IFRS space, and then you have CECL from the uh, U.S. GAAP space. So insurance companies are in a unique position where they have some very important changes that are happening to them right now. And there's a very important interaction that exists between the assets and liabilities within an insurance company where they're essentially trying to match the assets and liabilities and the recognition patterns, et cetera. So, you know, it's not just accounting change, but it is truly the interaction and how that volatility from recognition of assets and liabilities flows through to the income statement and how the interaction of those two could actually impact the profitability of the company. So because of that natural interaction, there's a lot of work that is done and needs to be done 
around how to help mitigate any sort of unnecessary volatility, how to use accounting policy choices to help you achieve the, uh, the accounting that best reflects the economics of the assets and liabilities. Um, there's actually been, I, I've been reading there's some concern around the standard contributing to volatility. Do you want to speak to that at all? Uh, sure. Yeah. You know, and I think that comes up because naturally with IFRS 17, it's a best estimate liability. So what that means is that each period, the assumptions are essentially updated. So part of the assumptions um, that are updated are financial assumptions. So that includes things like discount rates. In the past with insurance companies, depending on which jurisdiction you were in, of course, some of those financial risk assumptions were not updated. They were locked in. Therefore, there was usually no volatility that was coming through the P&L. Under this new world of insurance accounting, there's going to be volatility that comes through the P&L as a result of changes in financial risk. Now, there's a variety of aspects of IFRS 17 that are there to help an entity manage that volatility, such that you could take changes in risk for certain portfolios, and instead of putting them in the P&L, you put, them in, put that change in the OCI, um, OCI being other comprehensive income. So, and, and there's a variety of other choices that exist to insurers to help them manage that volatility. Now, that's on the, the liability side. Of course, the best way to identify what the volatility is going to be is by looking at the asset side and matching up your recognition for the assets and liabilities. So, for example, if I were an insurance company and I have an asset portfolio that's primarily recognizing changes in fair value going through my P&L, most likely I'm going to want my changes in financial risk associated with the liability to also go through the P&L. That way it's matching. If I were to use one of those OCI options and take the financial risk changes in the liability to OCI, that would create the volatility that wouldn't necessarily have been there under pre previous accounting standards. That's very well explained. Thank you very much for that. You know, obviously our audience is risk managers across the financial spectrum and also among other industries. Is there anything you could identify that you think our audience needs to know and understand whether they're insurers or not about this new standard? Can you speak on an analyst level? What are some of the challenges that our listeners and audience who are in that role might be finding in the upcoming few years? Yeah, absolutely. I think um, from an analyst perspective, there's a lot to think through with IFRS 17. And it specifically goes to the heart of what are these new financial statements going to look like and what is an analyst going to use them for? And how is their job going to change when they are looking at them? And, and part of that's education, right? Understanding what the standard is, interacting with the key insurance companies that you are analyzing. You know, one thing that an analyst could do is reach out to those companies and simply ask them, hey, what are you doing for IFRS 17? Do you have a feel for how it's going to change your financial statements? Can you just help me understand what I should be expecting? Now, the onus, the onus is on the insurance companies here, though. 
And one of their big tasks is educating the marketplace with regards to what their results are going to look like and essentially how to tell their story. And that's something they're thinking through right now. Um, It's a big, big effort within the insurance industry right now, especially those that have to address IFRS 17 and also U.S. GAAP's long-duration target improvement standard. And that is, how do I tell my story? Part of even starting to tell your story is building an expectation for the users of your financial statements, including your analysts. Um, But what I would suggest is that those analysts also uh, take a bit of directive and try and reach out to those specific insurance companies and simply ask them, how's it going? And do you have any ideas to what I'm going to be seeing in three years' time? I think that's incredibly helpful. I thank you so much for your time today, and I know you have a lot of work to to get done in the next few years. (laughs) So we wish you the best for that, and we thank you for taking the time to speak to us. Great, I really appreciate it. I appreciate the opportunity. Thank you. Thank you. Thank you to Bryce and David for speaking with us, and thank you for joining us on the new age of risk analytics. Please subscribe on your favorite podcast platform to be notified of future episodes. And visit sas.com slash risk for information on these and other risk topics.